Welcome to the program. My name is Blair Sinta. This is Recording Drums. Today are, we are talking to my old friend Travis McNabb. Uh, Travis lives in Nashville. Um, he had a long history with the band Better Than Ezra. Um, I met uh, Travis because I was opening for Bez Better Than Ezra back in 1999. So I've known him for a long time. Um, we're good friends. We don't see each other much. Uh, man, he's got such a unique style. I love, I love how Travis plays drums. Um, really great feel, amazing sounds. Um, he's also played with Sugarland, Gavin DeGraw, uh, Big and Rich. Um, just a, just a really cool, unique drummer. Um, yeah, so, uh, and Travis has a great home studio, uh, in the, in the kind of downstairs um, of his house in Nashville, uh, getting great sounds, um, di you know, different perspective from LA, uh, working, um, there. Um, so a lot of cool information here from Travis. All right, we're getting close. My drum recording expert class is coming up April 19th. It's getting close. Um, I keep pumping it on here. Uh, if you want to, if you want to learn not only the basics, but you know, what I'm doing out here, what's really going to help you, um, get, you know, really professional sounding recordings in whatever space you're recording in, uh, I recommend this class. Um, got a lot of great feedback from the people who studied with me before. They all seemed very happy. Uh, tons of information that will take you a long time to unpack. Um, and you can go back to any of these classes. It's all up on my website once you're signed up uh, and you've been through the class. You can go back and review the information. There's a community space. You can you know, meet other people, trade ideas on there. Uh, it's a cool thing, I think. All right. Let's not delay. Here comes Travis. See y'all. There we go. Is this? You just got home, right? You were out with uh, was... Patrick Journey? Patrick Droney, yeah, out for a couple months, really, which is the longest I've been out. I came home once during that time for a handful of days, but uh, okay. the longest I've been out in a good while, the last time I was out that long was, I want to say, 2015 with Gavin DeGraw, which was a similar, it was like two or three months, summer tour, only yeah. come home once or twice, you know. Yeah. And then before that, it was years before that, that I because Nashville, I've been here now for... 12-ish years, 13 years, and, and generally here it's Weekend Warrior <clears throat> uh, touring, you right. know. So it's it's uh, three shows, which include, winds up being four nights out, you know, because it's just all overnights on a bus. Right. And then you come home, you get home Sunday, and you're home till you go get on a bus Wednesday night to play Thursday, Friday, Saturday, back home Sunday, which allows for the balance of a life and and b you know touring and recording you know you're not just if you even if you're on a regular touring gig you're not just gone all the time usually right. except for the recent two months here. right do you like that do you like it like that i do like it there are pros and cons for sure i mean right. uh the musical <clears throat> momentum a group of people gets when they're just out right. is undeniably better just more magic happens you right you're just in each, each other's heads more and 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 uh things you wind up orchestrating new things on purpose at sound checks but also just discovering things in the shows right and the three at a time then four days off thing we'll never get those same kind of things happening but though honestly most of that stuff 
probably is more about how the musician's point of view of it versus the audience point of view of it. You know, Um, from an audience perspective, you know, most of these Nashville acts really work up a show, especially if it's on a level where you're carrying a lot of production and video elements and all that. And there's so many moving parts that you don't necessarily on some of those gigs have room to do that much you know, kind of hunting for new stuff anyway. So I feel like that's kind of where we're living musically anyway. I don't know if it's, I mean, I, uh, I can suspect that part of that's Nashville, but I also just think that's pop music in general. I think that's true. That that is definitely part of the pop world. Uh, And that was actually an interesting thing on this Patrick Droney tour. Um, This was the first time he had ever worked with any kind of tracks or click or had been on ears even. And so I did a handful of dates with him last year and it was very open and he's, he's very, very musical guy and and every night arrangements could be a little different and just sort of follow each other around a bit yeah um uh and then with this show knowing that that was a key or a, a component of him uh we definitely but there was some ear candy he wanted from the records you know things right. that humans can't do on stage right. um and so we just tried to make a balance of some songs that had some of that you know, fairy dust and other songs that were just totally organic, not on click, not no tracks, no nothing. And oh, cool. uh, that, so that still left that room for musical uh, exploration and, and reaction to one another, all that kind of thing. Man, that's, uh, that's kind of a nice balance. I really like the idea of that, you know, like not being totally tied to one thing. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like sometimes like maybe though, like if you guys like are playing on a Sunday night or a Saturday night, and you like something like happens when you get back out on that next Thursday, does that sometimes yes. that spark last? Yeah. When you're doing the, the kind of the typical Nashville few at a time that sometimes does happen. Uh, it just doesn't happen as often, you know, uh, but occasionally, yeah, you'll change an arrangement based on, Oh, that cool thing that so-and-so did last week. Let's make right. that a thing. Right. And so you work up a new intro or whatever, you know, right, right. Um, but, but it's less frequent and, and usually for the most part would need to be discussed because that's the other thing. For instance, with Sugarland, we didn't really use, we use tracks, maybe two songs or something, but there's, guitar it's a big band and it's right. on arena stages so we're really spread out right so any conversation is over talk back mics yeah. and you know it's it's like a different it's, vibe it, right yeah. it's a different vibe it's not as conducive and there's there are lighting elements there are video elements there are guitar techs getting different instruments ready for diff for various players on the stage for the next song so changing anything is just a big uh, you know, other than a, a minor detail, like, oh, what if we approach verse two down or something? Mm-hmm. Well, that's easy to do in a set check and right. that's it. Right, right, but right. to like change arrangements or change order of songs or any of that is more of a, there's just multiple be- people right. involved yeah, yeah. In, in the discussion. Yeah. Yeah. So it can't be a creative decision made between a handful of people. It's a, the handful of people might have the conversation, then a decision needs to be made, then that needs to be communicated to however many people, you know, are involved. So it's yeah. just a different deal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Patrick was, um, he was bopping around LA for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was there. Uh, I think originally he's, he's from the Northeast. So he originally went to college in New York music school. Okay. 
then came to LA for a handful of years, I think, right. and then wound up in Nashville, right. I think four-ish years ago, something like that. Yeah, I'm pretty so. sure I recorded something with him at some point. Oh, cool. Okay, that's certainly possible. I know that he was doing stuff, yeah, with various people there. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, and, and as much as you work, it wouldn't surprise me if you played on some stuff with him. Yeah, I think it was probably, it was probably in here. Right, right, I mean, right. I, I don't remember, something. but I just, I just, you know, his name pops up every once in a while. I'm like, oh, sure. you know, yep. yeah, yep. So, and he really, he really, uh, now all of a sudden, it's, it's a ball seems to be rolling for him, which I'm really yeah. happy. For. I really like him personally, yeah. And musically, I like what he's doing musically, right. and he's just super talented. So. Right, because I feel like he was actually quite young when I met him. Yeah, that makes I'm sure, sense. I'm sure there's a lot of more musical maturity at this point. And just, yeah, yeah. I mean, and he's still in his 20s now, but I'm yeah. sure, yeah, when he was there, uh, it was more formative time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great, man. Yeah. So, hey, this is the house that I came by like yes, years ago, right? Is. Same place. That's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Okay. I don't think you had that velvet curtain. Oh, maybe. Well, it's it's just over windows. Right. So it's possible those were there, uh, but just open, you know, kind of depends on everything from it can affect the sound a bit because they are uh, heavy, like, um, you know, weighted curtains. Uh, So when they're open and then it's glass, it's definitely different. And there's a wall of them here. There's like six of them, you know, person size windows. Right. Um, so, uh, and also since I've been gone, I just had them closed for, you know, like not advertising, look, I've got a ton of drums in right. the studio in this space, you know. Um, but also, uh, I honestly don't often think about it sound-wise. It's sort of, occasionally I'll be tracking something and realize, oh, I'm going for a dryer thing and it's livelier in here because they're open. I might close them or something. But I don't really, I don't even think about them as much as I might change out snare drum and muffle the toms and put up different symbols like i'm more likely to do that before i even think about the curtains it's only if i notice oh i'm trying to achieve a certain thing and i'm not getting it quite then i might open or close i feel like um when you moved to nashville Mm -hmm. you were you were kind of doing this like right away like down there that's true. I was, uh, because in new Orleans, um, with better than Ezra, we had our own studio. Right. Uh, and we had, you know, uh, it was a rehearsal studio, recording studio. Um, our merch was ordered out of there. It was like our sort right. of everything. Um, and we also separate from that had storage space that, uh, where touring gear would live. So I had no drums at my house in New Orleans. You know, it was just, okay. it, it was a separate thing. And so when we moved here um, uh, and, you know, bought a house with with a space that could be made into a studio um, from the get-go, yeah, I was. Because at that time, that's when Tom from Better Than Ezra, the bass player, kind of took over that studio as a, and he and some partners made it into a commercial studio. Right. And, uh, but we kind of split up a lot of the gear. He bought some of it from Kevin and I, but we also each took some. So I had between what I had from, from our studio in New Orleans, plus putting some money in, uh, pretty much as soon as I moved here, I kind of, I was just so used to having not only a rehearsal space and a storage space for drums and whatever, but also recording ability available to me. I kind of felt like 
I, I just wanted to do that right away. Plus, earlier in my career, before I was really full-time making a living as a player, I was a recording engineer at a studio back in the analog days. And I, the little bit of college I went to, I, I'd taken a recording course and kind of, you know, that's how I wound up doing engineering later. Uh, oh, wow, so, dude. I had no yeah. idea. Okay. Yeah, wow. yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So that kind of, I think, set me up to win a little bit as far as, and then, and then of course, the whole time we had the studio with Ben and Ezra, we were, if we were making a record, like now it's record making time, uh, we might, uh, we would then have a producer and engineer involved. But sometimes when we were just tracking rehearsals or writing ideas or whatever that sometimes became part of records because we weren't a full studio, we were just engineering ourselves. So even as, even aside from our earlier engineering experience, as, as Pro Tools came in and, you know, digital recording became the norm, still I was hands-on, not all the time, but enough, you know, to, uh, to feel like I, to not feel um, intimidated by the right. idea of just having my own place. You know? That's crazy. I never knew that. And where, so where did you do, where did you go to school and, and do some of that? That was in Arizona, um, okay. uh, just at, at the, at ASU there. Um, okay. Uh, I, I went to one semester of college because I, I knew when I was in high school, I mean, I didn't start, I started playing late. I was 15. Um, though my dad was a guitar player, his dad was a guitar player. So music was important around our house, right. but okay. I didn't start drums till 15. But by the time I'm getting out of high school, it, I was young for my grade. I think I was 17 when I graduated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew this is what I'm doing for a living period, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but my parents were like, okay, just do us a favor, <laughs> try college, you know, give right. it a semester. Right. Um, and, uh, and at that time I didn't have a sense because I think, because I hadn't learned, I never took any lessons or didn't have any music education in school. I didn't have a sense that a route like yourself or a Rich Redmond or, or Jason Sutter or so many that, that I could there was a thing to go to school just to learn uh, really about playing, you know? So that's why to me, it just felt like, well, if I'm going to be, you know, in, you know, if I'm eventually going to be in a, in, you know, my, what I was looking at was the police and you too. And these things, it's like, I just have to be in bands and, you know, and we become big rock stars, you know, (laughs) that was the approach. So college didn't, I didn't know of an idea of college having to do with that. So, uh, um, so I did the one semester and mostly took courses. I took an art class. I took this recording class. I took a couple of requirements that I, I think I didn't even finish, you know, and, and that was it. Uh, You didn't take, you didn't take music classes. You, but you (laughs) thought, but you thought to take a recording class. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It is kind of odd. I actually, when I was in high school, once I started playing drums, I did sign up for um, a couple of music classes that uh, in my senior year that, that uh, <clears throat> then they said, well, like I signed up for beginner music, like to learn how to read or whatever, you know, mm. thinking that's the approach. And they said, well, by the time kids are this age, they've been in, we are, yeah, it's in the curriculum as an option but not enough students have signed up for that because they all already know this stuff so i really didn't 
So I wasn't able to do that in school. <laughs> and so was, so was, weird, man. It's like, yeah. no, I want to learn something. You're like, no, that's cool. You know, nah, it was just, we aren't prepared to do that because yeah, you're the only yeah. guy asking, you know, for an introduction to music. <laughs> so, so I took photography instead, you know. Okay. <laughs> um, so I don't, but that's interesting, though, what you point out. I don't know why I didn't think then going into, uh, okay, I'm going to try a semester of college, which I knew I wouldn't continue on but right, right, right. out of respect for my parents i was going to do that was there a beginning music class there probably didn't i don't know just didn't so go did, there what did you what did you what do you remember that you got from that recording course did you did you actually mic a drum kit or was it like this is how a board works or what what was the- it was uh, so the first uh like anything where they start you is is what you maybe don't think is going to be so interesting, but ultimately really pays off. The first, I'd say third of the course was all book learning, all about actual sound, about audio, about how, you know, like I forget the name of the curve, but as things get louder, your ear perceives more high mid range and all these kind of detail and how sound bounces around a room or, you Mm -hmm. know, just how it works. And uh, um, so that was actually really valuable uh insight that i that i was taught as opposed to discovering over years right as opposed to most of the things i know in life including my playing is mostly trial and errors discovering over years but um so those aspects of audio were were taught in a classroom out of a book and tested on you know that was the initial part of the course and then uh then there was a um uh, a lab, so to speak, element to it, where we went to a studio regularly okay. and oh, actually wow. recorded things, you know? Um, yeah. That's literally and, the first time I've heard somebody tell me this, like that they actually got that type of training. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was really pretty cool and pretty helpful, <laughs> yeah. especially for, it wasn't a school that was all about that. This was just a right. course in the school, you know, but we went to a local recording. It wasn't a thing on campus. It was an actual operating studio they had an agreement with and we went in and would be hands-on. Um, and I remember the thing that in the, the final exam, so to speak, was they had a full live tracking session with a, a big-ish band with horns and stuff yeah. okay. in the studio, live singer, all that stuff. You record it, you get levels on everything, you track it, you mix it. And I don't, I don't recall a mastering portion, but sure. you, you mix it down. Right. And that was the thing that I remember. I, the only thing I blew, I got really good uh, grade on that aspect of it. I think in everything, cause I was interested, I think uh-huh. great, yeah. good grades across the board, but that detail, the thing that I didn't get the concept of until after I blew it in the final was when you do a final mix and then you mix down to two track tape, uh, you need to not only get your mix levels to where it's balanced in a way that you think is musical and good, but then you need to set the level on the, two-track recorder to get as hot a level as reasonable without, you know, whatever distorting. I didn't, I didn't get that concept of, so I just didn't set a level on the, on the mix down deck at all. It was just wherever it was. (laughs) So like my final was quiet, you know, because I didn't, my mix was, it was a good balanced mix. So I was told in, in my memory, but, uh, but that was one semester. Yeah, one semester. Yeah, I mean, they cover like, a lot. 
That's like yeah. a crash course. It do totally you, was a crash course. Yeah. Do you, so, do, all right, here's a two part question. Do, first of all, do you recall like the acoustic part of it being boring or interesting? And the second part is, do you feel like once you started to play live because uh-huh. you had that taught to you, you were, you were, that was actually in your brain and you were aware of like live sound and. Right, right, right. I think I did have an awareness of just the concept of, uh, that um because i think before that actually a friend and i did a lot of recordings on a four track cassette recorder okay. you know so so that was part of the reason i took this course i was already interested in recording my friend todd underwood who i'm still buddies with and saw recently okay. uh was a guitar player and we did a lot of recording just at his house okay. um and uh so i'd already l- learned some stuff but in my mind i still thought that recording was some magic manipulation where you could turn things that didn't exist into something else, you know, which now you kind of can, but at that time that wasn't true. And so I think that course, uh, like the acoustics of, of, of a space and how sound reacts in it. Um, I, I definitely got it. I think it gave me some insight into playing in a balanced way, which I didn't necessarily apply to live playing. Cause I still thought, just live with excitement we all everyone plays the cymbals harder than you'd want them to be balanced in a recording in a live situation but the drums are mic'd up someone has some control over these balances just like in what modern recording has become bass drums are always louder than they really are in real life in a mix that's just how we listen to music now and have gotten used to but if you you know just have a mono or stereo situation set up and you're playing as balanced as you can and you've tuned and muffled things in a way that's as balanced as possible the kick will not be as big and punchy as it is in any recording where multiple mics are used and right. so just that knowing that alone i tended to think more that way about the kit in a live situation just play for energy and excitement and yes play balanced but except the exception well the kick's going to be quieter so, okay, go ahead and hit the cymbals louder. I've tried to, over the years, get away from that, but yeah, yeah. I sort of just accepted that as a thing at some point and right. whatever. But but within recording, uh, I think it did uh, give me a concept of uh, trying to mix the kit as an instrument. As a, It is, yes, it's a bunch of components, but one dude's playing it as an instrument, you know, as a voice. Right. So make that sound balance the way you want it to come across. Um, uh, especially I think once I discovered that, uh, again, in that time, there wasn't as much, nearly as much manipulation as you can do now. So if if you wanted it to sound balanced, you kind of, you didn't totally have to play it that way. Yes. You could goose certain things and make things, whatever you could do some fixes, but the less you fix, the better off you are. That's the thing I learned too. Like the the yeah. better the signal going in is, the better off you'll be. Right. And so not only does that apply to tone and touch and all that, it applies to the kit as a whole, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that was early insight, I think, into that. Even though it wasn't taught specifically, I think I helped get that concept. Right, right. That's really fascinating, man. I mean, that makes sense to me, to like knowing you're playing too. Like, Oh, cool. Well, especially being quote unquote, like not a, educated mm-hmm. drummer like right, right. your your aural sense kind of like makes sense like when i you know when we met in 99 
Mm-hmm. Like you're, I mean, you had you had recorded a few records by then and and mm-hmm. and touring a lot, but mm-hmm. like I felt like your sense of like, you know, bottom heavy, you know, approach to the kit yeah. was like there. You know? Cool, cool. Well, that's nice to hear. And yeah, it's interesting because I do, you know, I sort of uh, think of myself as a, as a not a taught player uh, specifically, at least not. Technically, I mean, you learn from the people you work with and uh, and from everything you listen to and all that stuff. Um, but but, uh, you know, it is the audio or the engineer aspect that I was actually that I did actually learn partially from a book and in a proper educational setting does inform the aspects of my playing that I think absolutely helped make it what it is. So, you know, even though I've always sort of had this self-taught banner in my head, I mean, I think that that's definitely a part of my playing that, that comes from things I learned in a school, you know, who was, um, who was the first, well, remind me, what was the first record you made with Ezra? Uh, that would have been, um, uh, friction baby. So the oh, second friction one, baby, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And who, who produced that one? Uh, that was uh, Don Gaiman. Oh yeah, Don Gaiman. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. I worked Don with Gaiman, Don Gaiman who, once. Crazy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And um, and really, he was a you know there are kind of I think generally speaking two different sort of types of producers. There are engineer producers who yeah. come from an engineering background, yeah. and it's mostly about sounds. And they're usually musical and they're involved in arrangements, but it's more about sounds. And then there are guys who are musician. They were musicians first. They have a good ear and awareness of engineering, but they're coming more from a writer and as a player, um, you know, um, sort of join the band almost for the record as a musician, right. you know, and Don was definitely more the engineering uh, producer. It was about sounds, you know, right. And I think at that moment he was particularly into, um, um, Oh shoot. What's his name? Uh, huge producer did all the, a bunch of Pearl jam and, and, uh, uh shoot. What's his name? Uh, Atlanta guy. Originally was an engineer Brent, for Rick Rubin. Brendan uh, Brent O'Brien. Brendan O'Brien. He was right. he was definitely into Brendan O'Brien records at the moment. So I think he was chasing that thing a little bit. You know. Um, so wait, did Don engineer it too? He engineered it too. Well, uh, uh, Ethan uh, Ethan Allen, who was in. Oh right. Yeah, was in uh, New Orleans at that time, at, and we recorded at Kingsway Studio, which was Daniel Lanois' studio in the French right. Quarter. That's okay. Uh, Ethan was a house engineer. Oh, no shit. Okay. Yeah. And so that was, he was just, I think, supposed to be kind of house engineer for Don. And Don generally, I think, engineered his own stuff. But they, but clearly Ethan was more than just a, your typical house engineer. Not that that's a bad thing. That's just always a stepping stone for guys. Um, uh, And so I think he uh, wound up being more in get involved than maybe Don would have originally thought. And obviously we as a band developed a relationship with him and worked with him for years on many right. projects. Right. So, right. Yeah. And I now texted, he's in LA. I texted with Ethan yesterday, actually. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. 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 I would imagine y'all wind up working together some out there. I've, I've done some stuff for his band Asher. Oh yeah. Okay. It, it was almost by default because, because of the pandemic, they, I think they, oh, were, sure. they were planning on going to record somewhere and they, they couldn't. Right, so right. I, I was called and it's really fun because Ethan always sends these demos that are like sonic. He's like, he's like, this is 
this like I've programmed this thing. This is how I want it to sound. And it's okay. a really fun thing for me to chase because sometimes it's kind of like, whoa, yeah. OK. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's kind of fun. It uh, it doesn't happen that often to me, yeah, but yeah. it's fun when it happens. And, and, and especially with the nature of what you do as far as sort of showing folks how to achieve certain things. And occasionally I see posts where it's like, here's the Tony Thompson thing or whatever, you know. Uh, so to get something like that from someone as good as Ethan. Yeah. Uh, but then you need to be the live drummer version of whatever he's demoed. That's that. I can see that being a fun little thing to chase down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And of course, because it's Ethan, I'm always like, I got to fucking get this right. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> I go into like tweaker mode. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, then they, right. Cause then Ethan produced the next record, maybe even more than one. Right. Uh, he, yeah, he was involved in some, uh, in some, uh, because we had that studio, that space at times he was engineering with other producers. Like we did a yeah. record with Brad Wood or, you know, All right. uh, you know, but, but at, there were things where it was just us and him producing as well, because he was in town and we had such a rapport, um, that, you know, he, if we, we're, if we knew we were doing something more than just like kind of demoing, he'd get the call, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, except for, I don't, I, my memory is the record we did after Friction Baby, uh, How Does Your Garden Grow was, um, it was uh, Malcolm Byrne, um, okay. who, who's a great, he was sort of the right-hand man to Daniel Anwar for a long time uh, oh, wow. in, in okay. recording, producing, engineering, and is a great player, great, particularly keyboard player, but all-around musical guy. And he did a record with us that I, he engineered, and if I remember correctly, he just kind of did it all, you know? So I, I don't know that Ethan was a, part of that one i don't think okay. but uh almost everything else we did after that second record ethan was involved um w one of the things i always think about like is where you are in your career is like you got to work with all these like great producers because you were in a band mm -hmm, and it was like mm -hmm. an opportunity of like okay we're making a new record who would how do we want it to sound if we want to work it with do you feel like all that stuff all like all those opportunities um I mean, it it, it kind of like gave you a, a a palette to like be able to go into home recording. Right? Absolutely, like no, that's different absolutely approaches. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you do, you really do learn from those guys. Some just by osmosis, watching what they're doing, hearing yeah. what they're doing, and some you're asking questions. Um, and and it kind of felt maybe a little easier even to do that when it's your band and you've created this situation you know you're part of the decision making and you hired this producer as opposed to when you're a hired player on a session you maybe you side with the engineer like hey how are you getting that what are you doing there but you know <laughs> but when it's your band it's like it, everything's you know you it, it's a little easier to kind of right. learn in those moments and uh right, yeah you're so, like hey i th i was hoping to have this kind of sound for this right. thing how do, yeah. how do we do that like and exactly you work with the engineer that's yeah. right. That's right. You actually are initiating ideas that maybe you don't know how to achieve. Right. And then you, with the person who really knows you, you find those things. And so those are all definitely really great learning moments. And like you said, with so many different producers, you know, even before Ezra, you know, just in situations and since, you know, situations I've been in, um, uh, like early in my career, I got to work with Jim Scott, who's a, you know, mm engineered and produced so many great records and, yeah you know all that stuff was great uh great learning 
you know? Uh, and so, yeah, I definitely think it helped once I got to the point of between the sort of proper education, <laughs> even though it was short yeah. uh, about recording, then I, as I'm trying to get a music career off the ground in my early twenties in Georgia, I am uh, in a couple of bands because one isn't enough to make a living. So a couple different bands and I'm doing, uh, there was a big singer songwriter acoustic scene in Decatur, Georgia at that time that grew out of the success of the Indigo Girls. Okay. Um, And people like Sean Mullins and eventually John Mayer came out of that scene. um, And I was, sort of a bit in the thick of that because the studio I was engineering at was one of two main studios and producers. There was a producer, um, uh, Don, um, again, God, the names, Don, a great friend of mine, who's uh, <laughs> last name didn't come to me right now. And I lived with, you know, the whole deal. Right. Um, McAllister, Don McAllister, okay. my brain's a little slow. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that uh, he was the owner of the studio and the produce, generally producing all this stuff, but I was living with him and engineering stuff there and wind up playing on all these records for all oh, these wow. singer-songwriters. Okay. So that's getting me more recording experience, um, plus just playing with different artists in live situations aside from my own band. Right. Um, you know, So all that engineering and playing on records all the time kind of in the in my early 20s was another piece of sort of building this uh background engineering and playing background and how each one influences or affects the other you know so when you when you guys would do demos like in new orleans with your studio mm-hmm. with ezra mm-hmm. how detailed would you get like would you have like you know a like a lo-fi mic or whatever or was it I mean, was that important for those types of demos or especially because, um, you know, having worked with people and having been able to like ask questions and things like that, mm-hmm. you know, you uh, presumably you had that knowledge of yeah, uh, things like that. But yeah, I think sometimes uh, it's it, it sort of varied by the moment. It depended mm-hmm. on to some. I think the, the, the kit was kind of always mic'd up, you know, just okay. a, a main sort of setup in the main room. Um and so if we had an idea that seemed like it was be- becoming something more than a rehearsing, just playing it live in the room, mm-hmm. and we were going to try and track a version of it, I think we always had that concept that anything we do could wind up on a record. And so there was always some attention paid to making sure stuff was recorded fairly well, or even in an interesting way. Like I remember on the song Juicy, uh, we brought a tiny little kick and snare and one cymbal and hats into the control room because it was the driest spot in the place you know and just tracked it probably with three mics or something okay because that seemed appropriate and i don't know that we knew we were making the record when we did that track you know um so yeah we would i think we were had gotten used to the idea that anything we do could we could wind up building on and when you have that facility available and you're in it all the time you don't, you never are going to have to fight that demo-itis thing of like, how do we beat the demo if the demo winds up really good? So right. you just get into that mindset that anything you're recording could become part of a record. Right. Okay. So the idea for you to like have a home setup, you know, like a real mm-hmm. home setup was like mm-hmm. not even a. Yeah. The same notion. Like very normal. Yeah. Very normal. Yeah. It seemed like a really uh, obvious 
thing to do since I wasn't going to be in New Orleans and, and have that studio available to me anymore. Uh, and I, I definitely always thought that that's what I would do. And initially, um, cause my wife and I don't have kids. So we were, we were used to living in a smaller space and we were looking at trying to find smaller houses in Nashville and mm-hmm. the part of town we were looking in, it just doesn't really exist. And right. so ultimately we started thinking in terms of the houses that had, a main living part of the house and then some other like bonus room or built out garage or ultimately walk out basement is what I have here. Right. Um, you know, to use as my world where all my gear would go and I would have a recording set up and, um, you know, it, so that even, cause it, when we thought I, I originally thought we'll buy a smaller house and then separate from that, I'll buy some other building or rent some building, whatever, uh, to have a studio space and, Again, once the house shopping started, it was obvious, oh, well, this is all going to be in one. And so then as soon as that, you know, as soon as we had a home, I also had my studio space. So that made it easier to just jump right in. And I had, a, like I said, a gear head start from right. splitting up some of that Ezra studio gear. So right. um, all of that made it, I think, easier to, you know, get it going right away. So in Nashville in 2010, do you, mm-hmm. were you were you like a bit of an outlier having a home thing, or do you feel like the the drugs you met it was happening? It was starting to happen, not as much as now. I mean, now pretty yeah. much every, almost everyone does, yeah. or you know, uh, it is definitely the norm. Uh, mm-hmm. At that time, it wasn't unheard of. It wasn't crazy, but it was. Right. It definitely was. It, I'd say it was two out of 10 or something might have it. Right. Okay. This, this as much of a setup as I have, you know, and some mm-hmm. other guys had stuff where they could with a few mics kind of get something down for someone for a demo or something, but not like record making kind of right. full rig, you know? Right. Right. So. Do you feel like it gave you a leg up moving to town? Was it helpful? I don't know that it was helpful in town for me because uh, <clears throat> so much of the work that I, a, at that time, it, even though some guys had it, uh, it wasn't the norm at, or a norm at all in town. And still, this is the place where still most live everyone in a same space tracking happens. You know, it's still right. that's that's how uh, I mean, I think there's been even more of a shift since COVID to where people are doing stuff. But still, now that things are back, still tracking in the room with other live players is probably the thing that happens most here on, on records, you know? Um, and so, uh, I don't know that it helped me. It helped maybe, maybe a little bit in town as far as if I met somebody or played on a gig with somebody, then they might send me stuff. But so much of the stuff that I initially started doing and still is probably more of my work that I do here are people from elsewhere, either relationships I developed before I was here, um, or people who sort of cold called or emailed, with some tracks and then those relationships wind up developing, you know, if it's a producer or whatever, um, they keep rehiring you for stuff, especially once you get, as I'm sure, you know, a rapport with people, even if you've never worked in the same room together after, after a couple few things you do for them, they understand how you work, you understand how they work and it becomes easier. And then you just get regular calls on those. Right. You know? Right. Um, but but generally speaking, then and even now, I would say more of the work I do in this space are people that are not in Nashville. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, just cause, because so many people do have their own spaces, I often go other places, even if it's someone else's glorified home studio. With, you know, It's maybe not a commercial studio, but it's full on. They've got a kid already mic'd up with sounds yeah. they like or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So you go do that or you know, more of the sessions I get called for in town are, are still like the, um, you know, on the card 10, 10 to two or whatever, uh, um, or 10 to one, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, in the, I guess three hour blocks, yeah. um, you know, with where it's all just different players and you see same ones some days and other days you're meeting new people and, but it's just, a you know, there's a producer and an artist and a work tape you'll hear and a chart you'll be handed and you'll hear it one time to all talk about it a little bit. And then you go out and maybe mess with it for a second and then start cutting takes, you know, um, it's, it's mostly how things still happen here. Um, how big of a shift was that for you? I mean, presumably you were, you were prepared cause you'd heard about that style of doing things, but coming mm-hmm. from like having the luxury of time. making records and time yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and your own ideas, right. Sure, like, sure. And presumably yeah. being like strong minded with your own ideas in a band. Right, right. Yeah. 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 To walk I, into that world and, and, you know, accept and play along and right. Right. I think the accepting and playing along wasn't as hard for me as the, I always had a good, I think a good, um, sort of somehow in my brain, song arrangements came pretty quickly and I could make quick sense of them, but not as quick as here with the Nashville numbers chart where literally you hear the thing once and and then you go out and start playing it. And yes, a lot of it, those numbers are representing chords. And so it's chord changes and sections thinking, you know, musically that all made sense. But occasionally there's a, a little, you know, um, notation written because the whole band's going to hit a certain figure together. I couldn't read that. And so okay. in those moments, uh, um, I would have to write some shorthand that made sense to me of that, but usually you're only going to hear it the one time. Yeah. So that was tricky. And the other thing that I found that I had to get over, and this was tough was when reading a chart, if it shows a push, you know, uh, so it's instead of on a straight beat, it's on an and or, or a E or something, uh, syncopated, whatever. Sometimes that it, it would be coming and I'm reading the chart and I know it's telling me to do that, but musically to me, not a good idea. Right. So I just, my body would not want to do it because it just seems dumb. Right. And so, right. <laughs> you know, right. it's, it's, I, and I relate it to, uh, I heard a great story about, um, uh, God, names today aren't coming. Um, uh, great, uh, California country guy with the hat and the super tight pants. Dwight Yoakam, thank you. Uh, <laughs> tell you, man. Yeah, I know. Uh, just names aren't, aren't happening today. Uh, Dwight Yoakam telling a great story about, like, you know, he was so great in, in uh, again, here's the name, uh, the Billy Bob Thornton movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Sling Blade. Yeah, I found yeah. that one. Yeah. Uh, Sling Blade. <laughs> uh, and uh, he was so great in that. But then the next movie is on, you know, his management calls him saying, Hey, we're getting calls from the director saying, you, you don't know the lines. You're not prepared, whatever. He's like, yeah, I'll tell you why I don't know the lines. It's because they're bullshit. 
this is poorly written. I can't remember this crap because it's no good, you know? And it's like, eh, I can relate, you know? If occasionally on these demo sessions in Nashville where you're trying to knock out a bunch of songs at once really quickly, uh, and they're just not good, it's like, it's hard to just follow the chart because you're like this, there's no way that's coming next. It's a terrible idea, you know? Well, how much much leniency, I mean... I mean, there's not much time. I understand that. Yeah, but how yeah, much yeah. leniency is it like, hey, what if what if, you know, this guy hits that, but I stay straight? Right, right, right. To- uh, that stuff is ultimately uh, the kind of super mad dash demo thing in Nashville where it's still live band tracking, but you're trying to get, you know, six songs in a three hour period. Yeah, I, I kind of quit doing those because they were too soul sucking. And so in real actual record making, there is leeway for that. And that's still and that's the thing, too, that going back to the kind of question you had before, as far as the balance of being a band member, creative force and something versus being a hired player. I I think I really understood both as a, a touring side man and as a session player that right away I knew this is this artist or and or producers thing. And I'm it's service industry. I'm trying to give them something to make their thing better. Sometimes that's what they know they already want. And sometimes it's part of why I'm hired is my ideas or my, what I would bring to the table. And so I, I believe that I've found a way, at least in most situations with most of the people that I have wound up working with again and again, uh, where I can share all of my ideas because I feel like that's part of what you should be getting if you hire me. It's not just the playing. It's not just the tones. It's ideas. Right. But communicate in a way that that is clear that you know it's their thing and take it or leave it. There will be no hurt feelings. Right. There will be no, I'm not going to fight you hard on it, but I'm going to tell you any ideas I have. And and you read the room. Some rooms aren't as open to that. And so you don't do as much of it, you know, or only if you really think they're kind of dropping the ball or something, you know, but most of the time, uh, and especially as you develop relationships and now I've been here for a good while and work with some sane people, uh, I think part of the reason I get certain calls back or work with certain folks regularly is because of that. I think a lot of sidemen here that have only ever been sidemen feel some measure of maybe fear is not the right word, but they're hesitant to do anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I I think if you're offering good ideas that get used and it's clear that you aren't looking for credit, you're not looking for money, you're not looking for what it's just comes with the hiring of me. I'm going to give you the ideas that come from my personal musical taste and experience and all the whatever, wherever it all comes from, I'm going to present that stuff for you to take or not. I think there's value in that. And I think that's a piece of the sideman session player world that some guys miss out on the added value you can give with that. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, I mean, it can go, it can go both ways, right? You can, if you're overzealous, you can get, you know, it can can work against you. It can work against you. Absolutely. Um, Yes. But you know, I also think there's a, I think come, especially coming from the career that you've had, it it could go either way. Like you, and it also, it comes down to personality, right? You could be the kind of guy that's like, I have all these ideas and I've, I've been able to do this. So like, this is how I think it should go no matter what. 
right, right. You know what I mean? Which or would there's, be the wrong approach. <laughs> yeah, or there's like a but, diplomatic side, but maybe yeah. because you got to fulfill a lot of creative yourself for a long time being in a band, then mm-hmm. you don't feel as as much. Uh, well, I think you know, I, it's like I, ego, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you wanna, why, like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that, I think that's why what you're saying is exactly why I, I feel I'm able to communicate maybe by what I'm saying, but even in how I'm saying it or how the whole interaction of a session or, or a rehearsal or whatever might go is, is I believe I make it really clear that I'm not married to these and I'm not going to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. This is yours and I'm here to help make it better. Mm-hmm. If I can, in whatever way, whether that's playing or ideas or both. Yeah. And that that is my intent is to help you make it the best it can be. And so some of that includes uh, thoughts about arrangement or shit, lighting or the backdrop uh, or the right. tour or whatever, you know, like <laughs> right. whatever it is. I, I just I, I go ahead and offer it up. Yeah. And But in a way that hopefully is and I feel like is is clear that um that is, it's take it, you know, do what you will with it, you know? Yeah. 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 The, um, I think it's, it's part of being young too. Like when you're young, like for me, it was like almost the opposite. It was like, you become, you get hired by a sad man, but you feel like you're part of a band. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. like, Hey, I have an idea. And uh-huh. then when that gets shut down, you're kind of like, what the fuck? Oh, yeah. Then, ego, right? ego group. And yeah, then eventually yeah. you go like, oh, right, that's not my name. That's not my that's name right. on the bill. I'm that's collecting right. a paycheck. Yep. Okay, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so for me, it was almost the opposite. Right, right, right. You had to kind of experience that hurt and realize that that's yeah. not that's yeah. not what you're being asked for. Or right. not, not, yeah. It's not your place to fight for it. Right, exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and probably the p- other people in the room knew better anyway because I was – yeah. A little more green. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing to get over yourself, you know, yeah, on, right, right. on one yeah, side yeah. or the other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you're, I think you're right in that maybe I had an easier route because I had gotten to, as a band member, kind of do it long enough uh, that when I shifted into hired player world, I absolutely saw the difference. Plus I had matured. Plus I had fulfilled getting to fight for my ideas. And so I didn't feel attached to that as much anymore. So yeah, all that sort of made it an easier shift. I think, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the first, the first major like side gig you did was Sugarland. Yes. I mean, like as as experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was still in Better Than Ezra, but we'd kind of decided to, you know, take a bit of a break or only do occasional shows or whatever. And I had done a session for Sugarland, and I, um, uh, because I had known Christian Bush from my early 20s when I was in Georgia, um, and uh, and actually Kristen Hall, the original third member of Sugarland as well, I'd I'd recorded with her. Um, So I had some, you know, connection there, and so did a, a tracking session with them and then wound up being asked to go on the road. And yeah, so it was a, it was definitely a great uh, first 
foot in the door as a sideman because I always knew that however long I was in Better Than Ezra or it existed as a band or whatever, I knew eventually the next phase of my career would be as a hired player because eventually you're not going to start a new band and try and get a record deal at 40 or whatever. <laughs> and so, um, or at least not as the way you're going to make a living. You might, people can do it, but right. you're not going to depend on that as the, the next phase of my career. Right, right. And so I always knew it'd be LA or Nashville. And so to wind up on that gig as it was ascending, uh, you know, um, sort of just, over the next couple of years made it obvious that, okay, Nashville is going to be the move. Um, even though I didn't, if I, without that happening that way, if I were just choosing, it probably would have been LA. I mean, I, I do love Nashville, but I just, LA is more rock and pop and that's what my history is. And more of my, both my history and my career, but also just my personal musical history is more rooted in that, you know? Um, but that said, I mean, at this point, most of what's happening in Nashville even the country music, what we do as drummers is very much, it's just rock and roll and pop drumming. You right. Know? Right. So, yeah. I feel like, I mean, I, I almost feel like maybe that has shifted uh, uh, anyway. You know what I mean? Just like um, the, the kind of crossover between like, you know, country slash rock slash pop gigs oh yeah totally totally yeah i don't i don't think it's uh it's definitely musically for a long since i've been here really it's it's not musically that different occasionally it might be a train beat or something but otherwise you know uh but otherwise it was musically very similar but i think you're right even as far as like the the uh musicians and producers and engineers that work in these different worlds um you know i think I might have been an earlier one in that I was like in Better Than Ezra, then playing for Sugarland, but then, you know, and also Big and Rich and Little Big Town, these other country acts, but then went back out with Gavin DeGraw, a pop act, you know, just out with Patrick Groney. Like there was a time when maybe people were confused by that, but I think anymore, there is a shift, I think, to where, you know, Aaron Sterling's playing or, or Matt Chamberlain is playing on all kinds of pop and country records. You know, it's 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 not as unusual. And I think that's true of not just those players that play on so much of everything, but play more kind of, I don't know, mid-level or whatever players like me that that um, that aren't playing on every giant record that comes out. But still, I'm I'm jumping between these you know, yeah. genres, uh, just cause really musically, it's all just music, you know? Right. So, yeah. Right. Um, so tell me about your room. Like, what are you like, what's your kind of typical setup and how? Okay. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I definitely, I definitely, uh, like the kind of pretty much only do drum, drum tracking, leave it all ready to go at any moment. So it's pretty easy to just jump in and, you know, change out a couple of instruments as opposed to mics or pre's, you know, change a, a snare and a ride cymbal or something, and then I'm ready to track a new mm -hmm. thing or whatever. Um, so uh, I'm in the midst of part of the reason uh, I'm looking up at you here is my old computer which I'm still sort of working in <laughs> is up on one of my monitor, monitors right now on a speaker right. right now. And my new computer, I would be looking here where, you know, uh, between two speakers where you would normally you be. What's your uh, I, I got a, it's a Mac mini. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, one of the new, whatever, fa super fancy chip. Right. Okay. Uh, the M4 you know. thing. M1, M4, whatever. It is. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. I'm, it, yeah. Here's what I do too is, uh, 
both about that computer, but about every piece of gear in here. When I'm looking to buy something, I do tons of research and reading and figure out what that thing is. But just like the names, I can't remember today. Then I, as soon as I buy it, I completely forget right. what it, what it's called or what, you know, so like mics and preamps, I will literally have to look at them to tell you what they are other than like certain staples, like a 421 or something, you know? Right, right, right. Um, uh, but, uh, so my new rig will be, it's an Apollo, uh, eight XP, eight PX, something like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, yep. And so it'll have its own, uh, internal pre's that are, I guess, obviously selectable between different, uh, emulating different models, but right. then I also still be using some of the outboard pre's that I have. Okay. I got four Vintex here. I've got a UA LA 610 here that I use on my kind of my favorite character mic that I do, which is a, a figure eight between the bottom snare and the beater side of the kick. I love and, that. I love that. Yeah, and I, and yeah. just super, super crushed, like totally yeah. smashed. Yeah. And man, you sneak that thing into any, you know, mix you're putting together and all of a sudden it's a little more rock and roll. Right. You know, it's just, right. it's really getting the punch and the snap and, and they're kind of fighting for space because it's through one micro th microphone and one compressor. Um, so they just pop out, you know, it's just, it's, and it's gritty and whatever. That's my favorite, yeah. Yeah. you know, kind of character mic, but I do. Throw yeah, so you kind of do that on everything. That's like, I a, do that on everything. Okay. Yeah. That one is a staple and that's going through that LA 610 and it's just, I never touch it. Uh, is that also, is that your only bottom snare mic? No, I also do have a bottom snare mic okay. in case somebody's wanting whatever. Some, you know, some people are, it's amazing how many different approaches there are for <laughs> yeah. what we're doing, but also yeah. for mix engineers and producers. Yeah. And, you know, um, so, you you know, you work with one producer and he does the Glenn Johns miking of the drum kit, you know, and then the next guy wants close mics on everything, top and bottom tom mics that are like, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how many different ways there are to do this stuff. So since I'm just emailing and I don't always know to who all these tracks, yeah. I try to also give them the standard stuff they would expect. So right. I've got an internal and external kick mic. I've got a, you know, top and bottom snare. I've got a hat mic. If I'm doing a mix, I rarely use the hat mic, but right. I've, I've, you know, I've sent them a channel, right. all that kind of, and I've got overheads. I've got close stereo mics. I've got a distant mono room mic that's in the around the corner in the bathroom in the shower, okay, um, or occasionally in the stairwell, which is a, a, a spiral staircase, mm -hmm. um, metal uh, staircase, um, and then sometimes I'll do stereo distant room mics or you know a more of a um, mono mic kind of what people will call a crotch mic or whatever, you know, right. kind of where it's aimed in at the snare and gets right. kind of a close picture of the kid. You know, so, those so are you more, do, you actually do change your, You just told me you don't really change your setup that much, but it sounds like you. Well, <laughs> I, I only change in, I will, I might add some different character mics occasionally, okay. like, yeah. you know, but otherwise like all the close mics and even the stereo overheads, the, the stereo rooms and the single mono room mic, all that stuff is all, and that figure eight, you know, crushed mic okay. between kick and snare, all that stuff is always happening. Gotcha. And then, then it's like occasionally for a certain thing, yeah, I might hook up another mic right. somewhere or move the move the mono room mic from the shower to the stairwell or something. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. 
Do you have engineers over every and ever? I did early on, like the, within the first year I had, um, uh, a great engineer in town named Mark Dobson, who's a friend came over and, uh, helped me figure some placement out in some of how, what, like this mic and this pre on this instrument might be the best use of what you have here, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, and, uh, and then I, uh, Tom Tapley is an engineer out of Atlanta that I've worked with a whole bunch. Okay. Um, and, uh, I can't, I don't think he's ever been here, but I've, I've, I've definitely picked his brain a lot, particularly about this studio and okay. bought some certain pieces of gear he's recommended and, um, that kind of thing. So those are two guys that, uh, and I feel, I know I've had over the year now, it's been over a decade. I've had this place. I've probably had two or three engineers in, um, but mostly it's just me doing it, you know? Right. Um, right. So with this overhaul, when I get the new, like the new computer is set up at the new, uh, uh, um, interface is not, uh, I bought it in the end of last year. I just haven't had time yet to get it all up. <laughs> oh, right. wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and I really bought it out of like, you know, uh, I, I've quit updating the operating system on this computer because I don't want it to quit talking to the interface I have. Like every the computer, the interface, everything is so outdated, but knock on wood, it's still been working. Yeah. But I didn't want it to all of a sudden not be working and I'm not, and then I got a shop. Yeah, like that yeah. doesn't make sense, you know? Yeah. So I bought everything and my intention is to just make the time to, to, you know, transfer, to make the change. I just haven't made it happen yet, but it's all here and ready to go. And I actually, I think I'm going to try the Luna, the UA system instead. All I've ever worked in is pro tools yep. as far as yep. digital, you know, uh, no experience. And I mean, Ableton a little bit for live stuff, but never for recording and, um, logic, which so many people do. I've just never tinkered with it. Um, I keep threatening out loud that I'm going to do the same thing. But <laughs> haven't done it. Well, I mean, it's just like a time thing. It's like, it is. It's it like, absolutely is. It's really like, literally, I have to just do something myself. Like I'm going to get some drum sounds today mm-hmm. and not do it through Pro Tools and set up the time to- and spend the time. And right. Right, right, right. And not actually, yeah. not just once, but multiple times. So I could actually. Multiple times. And then to yeah. get it like, you know, I'm sure I assume you like me just have a template that you open up in Pro Tools. You turn everything on. You It's a new song someone sent you and you open yeah. a template. And like, there's so little tweaking you have to do at that point. You've, yeah. you've worked it out over years, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's all going to be from scratch, which is right. daunting. <laughs> Not to mention just like sip, uh, like bouncing things out, like ma- get, making sure the mix sounds similar, sure. like your two track you send out or, yeah, you know, how are you going to send out the stems or print them mm-hmm. with or without effects? Like all those little, uh, uh, all those details. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, so I listened to, I think I was just listening to, um, uh, Randy, uh, uh, Randy cook cook. Thank you. Um, the one you did with him recently and y'all were talking about that a bit. Uh, what do you, do you generally send out stuff with or without plugins like, you know, EQ compression on um, various things? Uh, or am I asking trade secrets? That no, you no, you're not. Um, it's, it's kind of, a, it's kind of, no, not, I don't, I mean, this is what, this is what I do. Right. I talk right, about right. stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely commit EQ and I commit compression 
Mm-hmm. Um, if it's something like extreme, then mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've figured out a way to like give the option. Maybe send both or. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. E- 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 without. Yeah, EQ, I'm pretty like, um, uh, I'm not afraid to send EQ. Like if I feel yeah, like yeah. something should be the way it is, I'm pretty yeah. like dead set. Compression, yeah. pr- compression is kind of subjective, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so and I got busted many times for like, hey man, your room mics kind of sound like ridiculous. I'm like, yeah, but right. they're awesome. You know, but they're awesome. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm the, I'm the same way. And yeah. and generally, generally speaking, I do send with all that. Uh, yeah. Even if there's like, you know, a, a tambourine overdub, this backbeats and verb, I'll send. I'll send it with the verb. You know. Yeah. I'll send all that stuff. Uh, but like, there are certain guys that I work with regularly and they ask me you know after i've done uh, did one or two things with them and then it's an ongoing relationship they're like just go ahead and send us your rooms without compression <laughs> because i probably like you smash the crap out of them and they sound great and right. it works but right. these guys want to be able to control it within their mix more yeah. and so it's totally i'm fine with that but just I, I feel like earlier on more people thought i was nuts to send with as much stuff on as I do, you know, or just, but I think of it as from engineering terms, as though that's all outboard gear and it's all being tracked that way, you know? And so so I think that's the sound, but, but as you say, compression is definitely subjective, uh, especially heavy compression. So like on a character mic, the figure eight mic I'm talking about, yes, that, in fact, that's happening outboard anyway. Like I right. can't undo that. Right. You know? But that's that's it is supposed to be a character mic that adds a flavor to the thing. It's not your mic you're d- dependent on for right. your mix. You right. know. Yeah, um, that's always the the nuclear option of by you know I don't want that. Bye. That's right. Cool. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you don't need it to have a, a clean sounding normal kind of drum kit sound. Yeah. You know. Um, but yeah, I. I I kind of, I, I like that. I think as more drummer engineers have become more experienced uh, and their and have kind of honed their skills and their ears and whatever, it seems like it's getting to be a little more the norm that a, a, a you know, reasonable amount of compression on, on some channels and whatever EQ tweaking you might do to close mics or whatever, mm-hmm. that, um, that that's where people are getting used to just sort of that's part of the the engineering of the tracking session versus the engineering of the mix session. So yeah, go ahead and, you know, print them that way. And presumably if it's done, you know, tastefully, um, it's, it's only helping them in the long run. Well, that's right. Hopefully when they push up faders, it sounds pretty good. It sounds pretty close. Yeah. Uh, And then they tweak from there as opposed to just super raw, dry, ugly, you know, (laughs) I mean, the thing is, I mean, ultimately, close mics, in my opinion, are used to get clarity and punch, but close mics alone do not represent what a drum kit sounds like. It's not what it sounds like in space. Right. You know, it's not what our ears hear. So you don't put your ear right up against a tom, you know. And so to think that that is going to yield some kind of A, natural, or B, good sounding result alone doesn't make sense. So room mics are super important. Um, and, uh, you know, 
so anyway, I'm, I'm getting off on a tangent and, and a bit of a rant for, you know, because I, yeah. I have strong opinions about it. Yeah. But but, um, but ultimately, with your close mics, whatever compression cue you do with those, and then your, your room mics and whatever else you got going, if you push all your faders up, it should sound like somebody playing a drum. I mean, it just should sound somewhat believable as a real sounds usually you see a space in your head that that person's in with this big instrument that's a bunch of different stuff they're hitting on and it sounds balanced and musical and then you tweak it and make it what you need it to be to fit in your mix of the other right. stuff right. you have happening. right you know at least you know 85 percent of the time that's the goal obviously using the studio as an instrument is a whole different thing and, and is fascinating and, and its own pursuit, you know, and, and great records are made that way. And I love being a part of them, yeah. you know, but that's kind of a, it generally just to capture a human playing drums, uh, what you send, hopefully they push up faders and it kind of sounds like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I agree with you like 100%. And then there's the, the opposite side where we're, we're so used to hearing things that are sampled samples <laughs> now. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. are so dry, right? That like to yeah. actually get close mics to sound good is a, is a really interesting thing to make it. You know, I guess like feel human, but not necessarily sound. Sure, sure. Sound real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that sort of falls yeah. in that using the studio as an instrument pursuit. You know, I think, and I have come to really enjoy. Uh, and even sometimes find the middle ground of, but yeah, if you go all the way into that, uh, it is fascinating to, but generally speaking, I find that this is not across the board, but overall dry actual sound drum tones in the room, super dry, then mic'd only with close mics, a lot of compression. Like that's how you start getting interesting mm. things that are akin to drum machines or programming we've heard, but right. that you're playing it as an instrument and can interact with it in the way you do right. uh, a drum kit. You know, that, that is, a, I think a, uh, is becoming, a, you know, a, a definitely a somewhat regular thing on a lot of records these days and, and can sound really cool. And, and uh, you know, I, I have definitely, uh, I used to be little ring in the snare drum guy. And then after playing on enough records and gigs in the last few years where people are looking for a drier, fatter thing, yeah. my go-to now on snare drum is a six and a half, you know, of some kind brass or copper. I yeah. generally prefer yeah. metal drums, but whatever, but with the thinnest big fat snare drum on it, the one that the shining, the yeah. silver one. Yeah. Which is what I, you know, before that existed, I would always cut out two ply heads and use the thinner ply as mm. the thing you lay on the drum because right. it still reacts to, your, you know, the, the feel of the drum isn't that different. Your ghost notes and all that little right. stuff right. happens in a similar way. Um, it doesn't feel like a just a, you know, like you're playing a phone book or something, <laughs> um, you know, uh, and, and all that stuff speaks well too. you know, and the tone of the drum. I just find with that thin one, they have that shining one yeah uh, it it sort of still has some tonality but then it chokes it's like boosh, right you know like it still does it's not just dead just right boosh, you know it's not the bad ring that yeah it's not the bad ring and it, yeah. it, it yeah kills the bad ring and it also 
but it's not like super dry where it's barely anything happens when you hit the drum. Yeah, the know? drum has life. Yeah. It has life. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so yeah. that's become my my now my just go to if I'm starting with I don't know what the music's going to be and I just put up a drum. That's what it's going to have on it. It's funny, man. I just, just as we're talking about like this sound right now, mm-hmm. I'm having like visions of watching you play back like, <laughs> my God, like in 99 and like standing behind you at like whatever club, like, um, remember that place where the, you probably don't remember this. It was cause it probably had more ones. There was a place and all the power went out in this theater. And then you guys went out and played outside the bus. Do you remember that? I do remember that. I think that happened just maybe twice in our whole career. And I believe that the one I think of, it happened once, I think, in Denver. and but Or maybe we just went out and did something after in Denver. Maybe the power go. The one I'm thinking of is Indy. I think it was Indianapolis. That sounds about right. Yeah. Because I want to say that uh, Peyton Manning was there. I believe he was at the show. Because the reason I remember that, and this is an aside, but it's an interesting story. Because our front of house guy at the time was this great New Zealand Maori. So all the like neck tattoos and all Mm -hmm. the, and he was a punk rock guy. So he had regular tattoos and Maori tattoos. Right. Sweetheart uh, of a guy. But the police came to shut us down as we're Mm -hmm. playing acoustically out in the parking lot. Yeah. And he says, he says something, I, I, I won't try to do a bad New Zealand accent, but he says right. basically, uh, oh, I think it's the birthday for some footballer, Peyton somebody or other. And the cops were like, okay, they can play a few more songs. <laughs> because, <laughs> and, and, you know, Peyton Manning was there. Anyway, I took over your story. You no, were going to no, say. I, no, I think that's it. That's what we're talking about. Because I can still, I remember how it felt outside. And it was like uh-huh. a summer, it was like kind of humid. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was like pleasant enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I do remember inside the theater too. It was like nasty and hot and sticky. Anyway, my whole point of bringing this up was watching you play. And I don't think you played rim shots. Is that, Oh, is uh, that, am I right on that? During the, the regular show? I mean, is that just how you play? Oh no, generally wrong? I, no, generally I'm a rim shot guy. You do. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm not, I'm yeah, not, yeah. okay. I'm not remembering correctly then. Yeah. But, uh, now maybe yeah. for the outside thing, I don't remember what I would have brought out to tap on, but if it was literally acoustic, which is my memory, I, obviously I would have been playing light touch and, and therefore yeah. also wouldn't have been hitting rim shots. But no, but, if you're thinking of like the regular part of the show, there are, you know, at that time, it almost always would have been rib shots unless right. it was a particular part of a song or maybe on the side snare for a certain sound or something. Right. Uh, it could be that I wouldn't. But generally then it would have always been rim shots. Okay. Mostly now that is still the case, except for the kind of sound we're talking about. Right. That often works better, especially in the studio, uh, if it's not rim shots. Right. You know? Or it, it varies. I mean, it depends on the drum and the tuning and the, all right. the miking, whatever, you know, but... Right. But uh, sometimes that particular sound, but still I'll find myself, like I did, a, actually it was for the guy Patrick Groney I was just touring with, his new single is called All Loved Out, and it has a sort of that dry, you know, yeah. snare sound. And uh, um, when we were getting sounds up and kind of realized, okay, that's what we're going for, I think I started tracking the song, not hitting rim shots. Mm-hmm. And as you're then working out the arrangement and talking about the parts with the artist and producer and whatever. And so you're thinking more bigger picture or, you know, musically or getting the feel just right, whatever the details are, mm-hmm. habit, 
I probably wound up playing rim shots, I bet, on the <laughs> on the track. You know, like this just feels right. <laughs> it just feels right. Yeah, yeah. And you're concentrating on so many other things that even if I started when we were getting sounds without rim shots, thinking this will be the sound, um, I, you know, habit. Sometimes you wind up going back to it. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't. It's funny. I don't know why. You have a memory of no rim shots. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Maybe, I don't know. maybe, maybe you did it sometimes and I don't know, whatever. It doesn't matter. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. anyway. Um, I don't know, man. I, you know, so, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll I, th- I feel like we've, we've covered plenty and I keep meaning to do this, like have some kind of theme like in here. Oh, okay. And so I'm going to try to do this. So the question would be if there's, is there a single piece of gear Oh. that you have in the studio or maybe you don't even own it anymore mm-hmm. you feel like maybe it was instrumental to your process of recording like wow. something like could have been a four track when you were a kid well, honestly i think that's probably the truthful answer for me is that initial four track which i didn't even own it was my friend todd okay but we were such good buddies and just sort of always working on music together and and uh we both absolutely wanted to be in the police and youtube like that was goal in life and Mm -hmm. you know those were our favorites and uh and we were always writing and playing and recording was part of that and and he had a four track and i think eventually an eight track and you know now he's got a home studio uh of course you know all these years later but uh but as teenagers, that was just that ability to get our hands on, to actually make recordings happen, to make multi-track record. Because even before that, by myself at my house learning to play, I did have an understanding that you cannot judge yourself very well while you're doing the thing. You have to stand outside of it and see how it comes across. Mm-hmm. And so early, early days, the first six months I'm playing drums, uh, I'm using a boombox. I'm playing with the stereo sound coming out of the speakers. I'm playing along and I'm recording it with a boombox to hear what it sounds like, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of the first, you know, interaction with recording myself to hear what it sounds like. And it, why doesn't it sound, Oh, that part sounds like I think it does. This part is not translating at all. What I think I'm doing, I'm not hearing it, you know? Right. And so learning that early on, <clears throat> then, I think got me fascinated with the idea. And then because my buddy had this machine, then we really dove deep into making recordings, uh, you know, and so we would pre-mix the drum kit and put it on mono or maybe two channels, you know, and then record something else now and maybe hit the baseline. And then we would mix those down to one track so then we had a few more tracks available you know so it was that building of multiple layers even though it was only a four track machine um that was absolutely instrumental as a as far as a piece of gear in me pursuing uh recording you know recording music recording drums right yeah that's kind of crazy huh how like yeah yeah it's like little cheapo things like that are but it enables you, you know, it gives you the possibility, Yeah. you know, whereas now I'll look around and any particular, like if we're talking one piece of gear being the idea, there's 
I'm not so married to any one thing in here mm. that I, I feel like I couldn't do what I do without it, you know, and, and my thing and even most studio, you know, uh, you know, let's I go to Blackbird and in, in, in town and play on a session. It's even there, just like here. It's a mix of, yes, maybe they're, ratios are a little different but it's a mix of expensive and reasonably affordable stuff yeah. like just because it's expensive it doesn't mean it's better it's just different and yes some of the expensive stuff is fantastic but also a lot of the you know there's a reason people still use 57s all the time or what you know i mean it, it, everything is 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 a blend of high quality, mid quality, cheap, because it has a certain character to it or whatever, like your CB drums or whatever, you know, yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's, uh, it's just using tools to make something musical. And so, uh, I think that that piece of gear that opened the possibilities of, of seeing and being interested and in getting engaged in it was the most important piece of gear versus any particular microphone or whatever I might have. Right, now. right, right. Yeah, yeah. Any Neumann or whatever, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, man, it's good to see you. Good to see you too. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, it has. It has. And uh, I think I told you when when we talked about me doing this that uh, I was just in LA and and thought about uh, you know thought about you and and almost reach out, but ultimately actually. As the self-taught drummer, first drum lesson ever uh, <laughs> with Mr. Dave Elich, and right. uh, trying to keep myself from burying the beater, which I've been doing for uh -huh. decades now. Yep. And so he gave me some pointers on that, which was fascinating. But unfortunately, it, it did steal my possible afternoon with you. So next time I'm through, uh, maybe we'll get a visit in person. But I'm It'll certainly happy again. we got to do this. You know? Yeah, I mean, I got to get out there. It's been a long time since I've rolled through Nashville, so I got to yeah. get back. Yeah. Do you pretty much only hit it on tour? Do you ever come out for tracking stuff or anything I, else? Or I haven't been fortunate enough to do that now. Okay. Just been tour. So gotcha. Gotcha. You know, okay. I'm gonna let's put that out in the world, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you've always got a place to stay well, here. Yeah. Well, <laughs> man, I'll do that. But yeah, that's the other thing. It's like, well, why? You know, you know, unless it's like a like a actual full on session. It's like you know, I do work with a couple of Nashville guys, but it's like. Mm. You know, it's not often and it's I just do it here. Right. So. Right. Right. Yeah. That's that's what this modern world has given us. And yeah, I think we're all more fortunate for it, even though, OK, you know, people lament. And I do think there is a different process to not be in the room with the people. But at the same yeah. time, we'd all be working a lot less if we couldn't do it this way. So I'll I mean, I, I, I do feel also that like I th I. I don't know what it is. Maybe it is COVID that I do feel like people are trying to get out a bit. Mm, yeah, like yeah, I've yeah. been working outside of my room more lately than I oh, have in a long time. Even not before ex COVID. Excluding COVID. That's what it right. feels like anyway. I don't know. Maybe yeah, there's a warped yeah. perspective, but it yeah. kind of feels like that. That's cool. I, I like hearing that. That's yeah. that's a good thing, you know. Yeah. yeah. All right, T-Mac. All right. <laughs> Such you, a man. pleasure. Yeah, yeah. man. Yeah. Uh, All right. We'll be in touch, man. Sounds good. All right. All right Talk dude. to you soon. Take, Take care. You. Thanks. Bye. Bye.